The Triathlon Hour is brought to you by Pillar Performance. I've been locked into my pillar routine for about two to three months now where I just use the same things every day. And that's triple magnesium and ultra immune C 45 minutes before bed and then ultra be active when I wake up first thing in the morning with my small breakfast before I train. I, I never miss it. And I think if you're going to try pillar performance or, or you already use their triple magnesium, but not their other products, then I'd love you to try this combo. I personally just honestly feel better using it. I have done all year, if I'm really honest. And like I'm someone who usually suffers from a bit of burnout and getting run down or just like fatigued and lacking energy. Um, but I think I'm having my best year that I can remember in, in quite a while since I was maybe in my, my early 20s or late teens. And, and I'm not sure like what percentage of, percentage of that to attribute to using Pillar, but it has to be playing some, some small role in it because I have been doing it consistently and I have been feeling great. I haven't been having that same thing where I'll have like a week really good and then you know a couple of days where I'm off or three weeks really good and then three to four days when I just need to remove myself from society and sleep on like sleep in and 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 you know have a few crappy days it just hasn't happened to me yet this year and I haven't been sick so I don't know I'm I'm not sure how big a role it plays in it but sleep's important and uh, I just I just believe it has to be playing some small role so if you want to try it for yourself um, I couldn't recommend it enough Use the discount code HTD20 for 20% off your order. If you do want to try it, um, let me know how it goes because yeah, I really am interested in hearing other people's opinions on this and if they've had the same experience or not. Welcome back to the Triathlon Hour, where today I'm joined by the now two-time Roth champion and course record holder, Magnus Ditliv. Magnus, we're going to talk about all things your race at Roth, but firstly, could you start by telling everyone a little bit about your coach who also joins us today? Yeah, my coach Jens is also here uh, in, the, in this podcast. Uh, we're actually sitting in the same room uh, because half a year ago, he moved. I still live at my parents' house and... Uh, he lived in uh, Copenhagen city, uh, but then he saw the light and decided to move uh, 500 meters uh, <laughs> close to where my parents live. So we are basically, <laughs> uh, I stay a lot at his house and we see each other uh, all the time. And uh, the way we met, I think, when was that? The first time five years ago, I think, and we've been working together since uh back then i was uh, i was coaching myself as an uh, ambitious age grouper and was reading a lot of stuff on the internet and uh, in books about how to train uh and i thought i knew <laughs> a lot of stuff but i think i was just training way too hard and was tired all the time and got injured and i started coming in the uh, triathlon club that i'm also a member of today where Jens is actually the, the head coach and I think he saw me and saw I was uh, <laughs> I was really skinny and not looking very athletic at that time but I was still training like almost uh, not more than I do today but pretty much the same volume but just like uh, really at a much lower level so it was completely out of scope so I think Jens 
uh, saw what I was doing on the sideline and he actually saw me at a race in Elsinore and like a 70.3 in Denmark and where I completely uh, fell apart on the run and yeah, just uh, was not able to hold any kind of form. And I think after that, he kind of reached out to me and said, uh, asked if if we should start working together because I also think he saw some potential. And uh, yeah, since then we have been working together. Jens is a former professional triathlete himself. He was, back then when we met, he was still active and he's been on Kona two times and one uh, Ironman Copenhagen uh, as a professional. So. He also has that uh, like the practical uh, approach, which I think is is really important. So he kind of understands how the race dynamics actually are. Sometimes when you have a, a really clever uh, guy that has read all the books in the world uh, and knows all the theory behind training, I think uh, one of the disadvantages can be that he might lack the know knowing of the race dynamics and how it actually feels to be a professional on, on your own body. So I want to st- I want to start by talking about Roth and then we'll come back to, to you and Jens and, and I want to talk about coaching and training and the training that you guys are doing because I'm very fascinated about it because every time I talk to people about, you know, what's Magnus doing, they always talk about he just optimizes everything. They, they're optimizing everything. It gets, it gets talked about again and again and again with you. So I'm really keen to go into some specifics, but... We can't just not start by diving deep in Roth. Um, and I think I think we start from the start. Like Magnus, your swim at Roth was a big talking point. And I know as soon as everyone saw you come out of the water in that front group, we were like, oh God, like <laughs> this is this is gonna be this is gonna be a hard race for everyone now. Um, it looks like it, it already looks like Magnus's race to lose from here. Can you talk to me about about the swim at Roth? Yeah, so obviously that was uh basically what set me up for such a, a great day. The fact that I was with the front pack out of the swim meant that I didn't have to go full on uh, <laughs> suicide mode on the beginning of the bike to bridge the gap, but was able to ride more uh, controlled the first part, even though I was still searching, but not the power numbers I usually do, because when I'm not with the front, our tactic is always to try and get to the front, front as fast as possible, because uh, we don't know what's happening in the front with lead motors, vehicles, so we always just have the approach to to get to the front as quickly as possible. So we are also uh, kind of more in control of what is actually happening. But this time I was already there, so <laughs> uh, came out. Yeah, the thing the the swim course uh, in Roth suits me quite well because it's probably the closest you can get to uh, like a pool swim where there is maybe it's in a canal and it's very flat water and there is maybe 500 meters or something until the first buoy so you have a lot of time to position yourself before uh, the buoy where it's always uh, in the big races kind of a and a bit of a lottery sometimes how you manage to get around the buoy and then the separation often occurs after that but this time I was yeah, I was just uh, lining up beside Patrick and Ben on the swim start, and uh, we got on, and I could just see I was actually swimming beside them for the first maybe 100 and or one, 100 to 200 meters uh, pretty much with them. And then 
they started getting a little bit in front of me, but I was only, always on the feet of them, and I could see that they obviously had some special colored caps that made it easy for me to see that I was actually on their feet. So pretty much it was a very uneventful uh, swim for me, and, and I was just on the feet uh, of them the whole time after after the start and felt felt really good. That's the annoying thing with swimming is that when you finally hit the front pack and you are on the right feet then it's actually not that difficult but when you are not there and you have to uh, fight in a really big group or try to close some gaps on the swim it can be really really hard so this time it was actually also even though we were swimming swimming with the front pack and swimming faster than I usually do it was also one of the easier swims for me do you think that if that swim had have been, you know, not wetsuit, that you would have been able to keep up the same way you did with the wetsuit on? Yeah, and that's a good question. I think without wetsuit, you create usually more separation. But I think the way I'm swimming is actually quite leg uh, dominated. So sometimes I feel like I actually swim and have had some of my better swims without the wetsuit. So yeah, but it's it's difficult to tell. And in the lead up to the race, did you get that feeling that like in your swim training, were you feeling, I, I actually think I could hold on to the front group here or did you have sort of no indication of that and you were surprised to be there? Um, so I, I I think my swimming has been quite good in in the swimming pool and, and training for actually quite a long time. And uh, I've been working really hard with a swim coach to protect that and, and work on my technique and working on that. So I think we have had the hopes for me reaching. I like When I lined up in Roth last year, we were also hoping to to hit the front peg on the swim. So it's something we've been like hoping for and thought was actually a possibility for quite a long time. Uh, sometimes it just takes... Uh, uh, I don't have uh, the biggest experience because I started triathlon quite late uh, with uh, mass starts and open water uh, starts. So I think it takes some some like a few years maybe of of experience to actually uh, nail the swimming starts because it's not pure speed where where you can see when I'm actually when I actually hit the right feet it's not that difficult to to stay with them. I think it's usually that comes down to the first. A few hundred meters, and that's also where I think experience is is really key. So, it was not that I've been swimming much better than I have uh, previously in training, uh, but still I was I was I knew I was in a good shape. But uh, yeah, we were we've been hoping for for that swim for quite a long time now. We also together with the swim coach, we changed his stroke a bit in the winter, so he he has like a. Um, had a little bit better cadence for home water now, so that's maybe also a reason why he is in the front now that he has like his swim swimming technique is better suited for open water now. And by that, Jens, do you just mean that his cadence is a little bit higher, or is there like an ideal cadence that you guys think so it's not too high or it's not too low? It's sort of just just like you know Goldilocks no porridge. There's, is there a cadence that's just right? The thing we have been focusing on together with the swim coach is not to have like too um, long of a glide in front of the body because that's a part where you, you don't create create any like uh, forward motion. So we have focused a lot of on like taking on the like normal swimming glide you have in front of the body, just try to start to catch a bit earlier. So 
Magnus has like really long arms and long body, so he will never have the cadence like uh, like maybe Patrick Lange because of the height difference. And so why is it that in the open water, it's faster to sort of be increasing your cadence a little bit instead of like letting your hand glide out in front of you like you might say in a longer distance pool swim? Yeah, I think it, you're just more uh, like fragile when you have the long like gliding phase and long uh, arm strokes. So if you can increase the cadence uh, and also in different weather conditions like waves, for instance, I mean, Rod is close to a pool, so might be able to swim uh, the old technique there still. But when you get into some waves and a lot of people around you, I think uh, the increased cadence uh, yeah, just helps you a lot. Magnus, could you give me some examples of like, Pool, some pool sessions that you were doing that made you think that you were, you know, not far off it, despite maybe struggling a little bit where to translate it to open water. Like, what were some of your your faster or better pool swim sessions? Um, so we usually, uh, yeah, do have some examples. Yeah, and we have two uh, quite fast short distance guys in our uh, squad that. Um, that are doing quite well in the swims in, in short distance. So we kind of have like, uh, if, he, if he can keep up with them, he's like, he should be able to to be in the front group and he can swim like kind of the same times in the pool as they can. So so I think they are a good reference in in like uh, regarding that he can, can get out of the water in the, the front. And so like specifically with that, say, something like, you know, 10 to 20, 100 meters, sessions that, that everyone who has ever swum has sort of done and can relate to. What kind of pace, you know, in a pool and, and a time cycle might you be doing them on? Uh, we usually do some longer uh, sessions, like up to four kilometers of uh, threshold work. Uh, so that could be uh, 10 times 400 or 40 times 100 on long course, uh, where maybe leaving on 130 uh, long course meters, that is, and now it may be hold uh, 113, 114 per hundred for those, or like four kilometers with pretty short breaks in between. And is is volume a big part of your like overall swim program? I guess, I guess this is more directed at you, Jens. I think uh, we swim quite a lot in the in, in the squad. I think the Magnus is around maybe twenty five to thirty kilometers uh, in a normal week. Um, so I think that's quite high, but I don't think it's unusual in the in, in the in the pro field. Well, actually, what we did uh, this year was uh, after my off season, after I raced in Cozumel last year, we completely uh, put like. I uh, reset everything with my swim so far the first uh yeah two or three months actually I was only swimming maybe two kilometers at a time and uh, because it was so difficult for me to uh, work uh, to not fall back into my old habits with long uh, strokes and gliding uh, like a longer gliding phase so I was basically swimming really short uh, maybe 50 meters at a time because it's easier then to focus on the new technique and doing that, uh, yeah, really just patiently building uh, slowly up till the old swim volume, uh, but still always making sure that I was able to to hold the new technique that we wanted to implement. So there were some months where I was really 
swimming at low volume and only and no like pure uh, quality swim sessions, only technique work and really slowly drills and stuff like that. And then onto the bike or into transition one at Roth with you in the front group. So the front group was seven guys. It was yourself, Ben Canute, Sam Laidlow, Daniel Backgard, Patrick Lang, um, old Rob Wilk. I cannot say Rob Wilk's name, even though he's told me how to say it. Um, okay. Yourself and, and then Peter Heimrich. What did you think when you got into T1 and you're in that select front group of seven? Something that has never happened in your long course career, not, not with a group quite as strong as that. What were you thinking? What was your plans? Um, and, and then how did the bike play out from there? Yeah, so uh, the issue with uh, was that Patrick was also in the front group. So <laughs> I knew that uh, I would still have to create some separation and get rid of him pretty uh, as early as possible because he probably, will, will probably be capable of a 2.30 marathon again. So so actually my... my t- I, the tactics and strategy didn't change that much, uh, except that I was not doing the really, really high uh, searches uh, this time, but more in the, I tried to, to ride away more controlled. And yeah, I think I went to the the beginning of the bike as maybe the first few kilometers pretty technical. Uh, and I used that to get uh, back to the group and position myself well in the group. So. And once we hit the first part where it's quite hilly and uh, more the first part of the uh, loop is is quite tough. So that was where I managed to drop Patrick uh, last year. Uh, so <laughs> I wanted actually to try and see if I could uh, do the same again uh, this time and went to the front. Uh, and uh, for a long period, longer than last year, everyone was with me. Uh, of course, I was not searching the, as aggressively as last year, but still was a bit surprised that they were all able to keep up. Uh, and then we hit uh, really the longest climb after how far? 36 in the back. 36, yeah. Uh, 36 kilometers into the bike course. There is a really hard and long uh, climb where I rode. Uh, that was maybe more back to my usual uh, searching style. So I rode up that. And I could see that uh, it was only Daniel and Sam and that were able to keep up. And we already had quite a big gap after that one. So, And then I kept pushing on top of the hill. And after that, uh, to see if I could uh, yeah, drop uh, the two others. But uh, yeah, Sam was able to follow. And I thought from, from there on, it was really uh, like a, a great position for me. Uh, of course, you never know it with Sam after his race in Kona, but I still felt uh, that it, it was probably the uh, perfect for me if we could start working together and build up a, a large gap on, on the rest of the field. So I wanted to uh, try and see if I could get him to do some work, uh, but he was uh, refusing refusing to do that in the beginning. And I think after, uh, I don't know, 70 kilometers, he, he got... He took the front and we just basically <laughs> decided to take turns and change the leader every 20 minutes uh, on the bike. And yeah, so that was, it was pretty nice also to have someone uh, to follow. So you can switch off a little bit mentally and just follow the guy in front of you when he was leading. Uh, and I had people, uh, Jens and my 
parents and my girlfriend and my best friend also out on the course with uh, giving me splits. And I could see that basically every time I saw one of them, we had increased uh, with one minute to Patrick. So that was, yeah, I think the perfect scenario. And so you ended up riding 357, um, Sam Laidlow there with you. A lot of people are already looking at that and saying, well, we've never seen a, a better bike ride in long course triathlon history. Did it feel like that when you were out there? Mm, I could see that after, so so route is a two-loop course, uh, and I was getting pretty annoyed because my power meter was reading really low numbers, which uh, I could, I was wondering if I had, like, didn't have my best day out there, but still I could see that we were riding. After one lap, we have, like, 55.7 uh, kilometers per hour in average after 90k so uh so i was also and i could see that we were gaining on everyone so i thought uh, they had that okay there must be something off with the power meter and i didn't really uh, look at that too much from there on so and when we when we like got out onto the second lap after maybe one hour and i think it was one hour and 50 two or 53 minutes uh, i thought okay well, we are actually moving really really fast and i knew that it was a wetsuit swim also compared to last year where it was without wetsuit so i was doing some uh, quick uh, math in my head thing okay well, we might be able to go uh, extremely fast today and so there was a couple of things that were interesting about the bike ride and i think you and Sam Laidlow being at the front together was probably the most interesting part of it. Um, you spoke about how you thought that was a really good position for you and and it's it looked like that as well. And I remember talking to you after the PTO European Open where you were in a, a group that was much stronger than that on the front of the bike. Like when I say that, I mean a group that had much stronger runners in it than just Sam. And you said, well, I didn't really attack or try and get into transition two by myself because I thought I could outrun everyone there. And those people were Jan Fredino, Christian Blumenfeld, Alistair Brownlee, Max Newman. And so I was watching watching it, wondering what you were thinking when you were, you know, out in front building a five, six, and ultimately 15-minute lead to everyone behind you and you had Sam with you. I wondered whether you ever thought about trying to attack him or whether you were just like, this is perfect. I'll sit in with him. I'm going to outrun him almost no matter what um, if I don't have a terrible day. Yeah, so I'm just wondering what, what your what your thinking was in terms of tactics and dynamics out there while you were riding. Yeah, so my, my main worry was Patrick and I wanted to, of course, you never want to start the marathon with him. Or uh, So I knew I needed, uh, I thought maybe uh, like five minutes would be the, the limit where if I had less than that, it would be really difficult. And and then with, with Sam, uh, I was pretty confident, I would say, also because I felt uh, in control on the bike. But still, I had that thought in my head from Kona last year where he just, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say he came out of nowhere, but he really performed well. And, and then he has had some uh, bad luck and not the best races this year. So... He was kind of, yeah, I didn't really know where he was at. So, but, but I was for sure, I was pretty, pretty happy with the situation. And I didn't think of trying to get a gap on Sam. I think that would have taken too much uh, energy late in the bike ride to do that. Did Sam seem like he was struggling out there at any point? Did he seem pretty comfortable? 
yeah uh, on the bike we we didn't say much to each other of course it's difficult when you're riding uh, 12 meters apart but he seemed pretty uh, i looked at him when i uh, went by to take the lead a few times and he didn't look that uh, he looked really also pretty good and yeah so that it was mainly on the run where i started to to look at him and see if I could find any <laughs> small weakness, uh, see how he felt, but also on the beginning of the run until he, he wasn't able to to follow the pace, he looked really good and was not breathing heavily or anything. So I, it actually came as quite a big uh, surprise to me that he dropped off after 10 kilometers. I thought he, he would be able to hold, uh, from what he looked, be able to hold the pace for quite some time. I'm going to come back and talk all things the run, but just to just to stick on the bike for a couple more questions. There's two bits of like equipment um, conversation I want to have, and then and then something else, um, some training stuff. Starting with the equipment, we finally seen what I have been terming the Magnus Ditlev rule be brought in, where the chest fairings or the belly fairings or you know the hydration systems down the front of the the tops they've finally been banned by a race. Um, and that sort of got sent out to you guys in an email a few days before the race. Uh, what did you think of that? What did you make of that? Uh, I was talking to Jens about it actually beforehand, and we were kind of uh, saying that since everyone is basically like all a lot of the top guys uh, are doing it now anyway, so it wasn't that. Like when I introduced it last year in Roth, it was a competitive advantage uh, because I was the only one back then that did it. But now that uh, like a lot of the other ones uh, guys are doing it, then it didn't matter to us actually because we weren't having an advantage of uh, doing it anymore. So it was fine with me that it was yeah, banned. And then the other one, oh, I guess sticking on that quickly, we, we talked about it when we did a podcast a few weeks ago, Magnus, but a lot of people had moved to putting like full camelbacks, like, you know, 1.5 to 3 litre camel packs down there, down their front, whereas you would always just go with the smaller sort of like 600, 700 mil like Tupperware or, or water bottle type setup. Did you did you test the camelback? Is, is there a reason why people had started to do that instead of copying you, who was the sort of person who started it all? No, we actually, we have it scheduled for an arrow test coming up. So we didn't uh, test uh, like a really large camel pack yet. And are you still going to do that? Or are you assuming that Iron Man might follow suit and it won't be worth it anymore? I think I'm going to test it anyway, because the way we do the testing is quite easy to, to test uh, for, for such a thing. So I think I will do it and then see what Iron Man, if they decide to to ban it or not. I don't think they will do it, but we will see if, if they decide to react on on it. I um, I had a conversation with Andrew Messick a, a couple of weeks ago, and, and I asked him about that, and he sort of said that they're, they're keeping their eye on it, but they don't have any plan to ban it, whereas I think you always got the sense that Challenge might have been looking at it. So, yeah, I think I, if I had to guess, I think that, say at the Ironman World Championships and the Ironman 70.3 World Championships, I think I think it won't be banned if I had to put money on it. So, yeah, I think it's definitely still worth testing. Yeah, it was actually, it was not Challenge uh, that that decided because Challenge Roth uh, only follows the rules of uh, German triathlon. So it was the German triathlon uh, 
rules that where it is not allowed. So it was not challenge or, or anyone that decided it. It was simply the, the German Federation rules. That's interesting because I sort of got led to believe that, yes, that was the case, but it might have been pushed by the people organising Roth that, that we don't want this, particularly... I don't the, know. <laughs> yeah, particularly maybe the front-faring systems like the... I think they were less concerned about the chest ones and more concerned with the... Uh, the bottle setups uh, like on the on the TT bars and that kind of thing and then they sort of just thought well we'll get rid of all of it that was that was sort of what I'm led to believe happened yeah and that that is also a, a possibility I think the problem is uh, with the with the thing with the chest um, bottles and stuff like that that it happens like quite not not often but it happens that like people are losing their um, yeah, hydration system. So if you basically lose your hydration system, you don't have any options to like have the water on, on your underneath your suit now. So if you lose your hydration on the bike, you're basically fucked. Well, Tom Bishop talks about this a lot. Um, he he argues that the 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 bottle down the chest has actually opened up his eyes to the fact that this is a much more effective way to store hydration and if it has the the aerodynamic benefit that's great because he he thinks that it's very easy to lose your back bottle and we see it constantly in professional races especially with the faster speeds hitting bumps and that we're con- we are constantly seeing black bottles flying out of the the seat post drink holders so that is an interesting thing whether whether we should be allowing it if it is for hydration purposes like whether there's you know, it has to be filled up to a certain amount, or I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. But if it if it is a genuine way to store hydration, and I, like it's a it's a pretty like it's an interesting one whether it should be banned or not, isn't it? Yeah, and also <laughs> the the rule this time was that we are not allowed to have anything inside the suit, and anything that also means that we cannot put a gel inside the suit on the bike. And I know that a lot of people including myself have done that in the past uh, riding with small gels in the suit uh, in case something happens or just to store the nutrition you want to take on board on the bike so so it's a bit of a <laughs> dilemma for sure yeah like if you look at Kona every single year people have bottles and and like ice and and fuel down there down their top during during the race there's not a there's not a year that goes past where that doesn't happen and say if you look at the women's race like women constantly store gels and and spare bottles in their like um sports bra while they're racing so it's a yeah, it's a it's, a, it's an interesting like can of worms that's going to open and i think a i think quite a tricky rule to enforce and maybe one that i don't know i can i can see over time either you know being like it's staying really strict and people adapting or they realize oh this is a bit silly and 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 they start to be a little bit more lenient with it as long as it's not like the big bottles just for the purpose of aerodynamics yeah yeah it's difficult where to draw the line and then my other question is is about equipment and technology while we're at it and something i have wanted to ask you about magnus because it's it's something else that you were on the on the sort of cutting edge of and it's just calf sleeves how big an impact do they have? How many watts are they saving? Because um, everyone is, there's not a, there's barely a professional on the course, male or female, who doesn't wear them now. And, and even it's permeated its way into age group racing where you, you watch an age group race and like hundreds of, pe- of age groupers are, are racing with calf sleeves. Uh, calf sleeves is uh, actually quite significant how much they save. Uh, it can be, of course, it's very individual and, if you manage to find a fast setup on your leg, 
uh, but it's for sure can be more than yeah it can be even minutes uh, on an Ironman bike course so that was also one of the differences to last year that it was without wetsuit so I didn't wear calf sleeves so even just from that I have a few minutes already on the bike split there. So walk me through this if the swim is a wetsuit swim you'll wear your calf sleeves before the swim starts, swim in them, and then they're just on for the bike. Will you ever, in a non-wetsuit swim, take time to put them in on in transition one? Uh, traditionally, I have not uh, done that because I've always had like a, a gap to close. And I think if I, uh, it's quite, it can be quite, I tried to do some testing going into Kona uh, where I wanted to see how fast I can actually put on sleeves. But it can be quite messy where when you are all wet and you come out of the water with maximum heart rate and try to put on some really tight uh, arrow sleeves. So so for me so far it has not been like then I would already there I maybe lose close to a minute by putting on the calf sleeves and then I would have to ride yeah, yeah even faster. So uh, even though I might gain more than that minute on the by putting them on just. Uh, racing the dynamics of the race and making sure I'm close as close to the front as possible and get there as quickly as possible we have kind of uh, evaluated that that is more important I'm so excited to announce that the triathlon hour is officially supported by the feed I've been a loyal customer myself of the feed well, well before this and I think if you train for triathlon and haven't also shopped through the feed then you're just missing out the Feed is basically a one-stop triathlon essentials online shop. They seriously have so many things you need for race day in one spot. It's crazy. They have a big focus on training and race day nutrition with brands like two of my personal favorites in Pillar Performance and Precision Fuel and Hydration, but they also have hundreds of other brands and products. There really isn't any of the big brands they don't stock um, when it comes to nutrition for training and race day. And they have lots of nutrition products that I didn't know existed, but I've tried and loved like they have these sugar waffles for long rides as an easy treat on long rides for when I don't want just gels, but also don't want to have to stop off and, and grab junk from the servo. Um, I love them. I eat them probably most long rides. I would say um, they're like a Saturday treat that I really look forward to. And like you, you'll go and have a look and like, there's so many nutrition products. You'll get lost in it and you'll be like me. Like you'll see a, you know, a hundred things that you're like, oh, I wouldn't mind trying that. But they also have other products that aren't just about nutrition. And something I bought is the, I actually don't even know how to say it because I haven't really talked to anyone about it. It's just something I've seen on Instagram and wanted to try for myself. But the Omius headband, cooling headband, it's that headband that you just see on just about every pro um, in their race pitches these days. It has like those little cubes on it. It's like a cooling device that you wear on your head. And I found it great for hot training, particularly for my long runs or long run sessions during the middle of the day in the heat. Um, I, I definitely plan on racing in it. And I was super skeptical, but I don't know if it's just been a placebo, but yeah, I've definitely felt that it, it does have a bit of a benefit. So I'm curious to try it for a race, particularly a hot one, but I think there's a reason why so many pros are using it. And I honestly wouldn't have bought one if I hadn't jumped on the feed and, and looked through because it's just one of those things where I see everyone using it and I saw it, I'm like, oh, I'm going to try it. And there's so many things like that. Um, also for the exact same reason, got some, some like aerodynamic calf sleeves from there because everyone's wearing them like now like literally there isn't a pro that exists in triathlon that isn't wearing them so they must help um they're on their way now and i'm really looking forward to trying them out 
The feed is just one of those places that if you go into it, you can scroll for an hour and find so many useful products, particularly the nutritional products, but there's heaps of stuff for your training and racing there. And I find myself during the day slacking off from work and, and scrolling it and, you know, putting like 10 or 15 new things on tabs I'm going to try. So my bank account's not going to be happy, but I'm just excited to try so many new products because I love that. And it's it's probably the main thing I love about the feed is that it's like this platform where you can go and try new things and try to optimize your training and racing um, equipment and nutrition. And yeah, that, that's what I love about it. And I love that it makes it simple with having it all in this one one portal. You don't have to go to every every website under the sun. You just It's all in this one place. So jump online and check out the feed's website and start using it as your one-stop triathlon online shop for all your triathlon needs. And then with the um, with your bike training, I think it's it's probably the number one thing I'm curious about in triathlon training right now. Like uh, I'm I'm fascinated about the way the Norwegians train, but but the way you you train on the bike is something I want to explore a little bit more. I've been like I obviously heard. Uh, on the grapevine that you did a FTP test, like a standard 20-minute test, something that not a lot of pros uh, that I've talked to ever do, that you did one a little bit earlier in the year and held 508 watts for 20 minutes. So my first question is, can you confirm that? And then my second question is, can we talk a little bit about your bike training at the moment and and how that's been looking? And and a big reason why I'm excited to have Jens on is to, to discuss this exact point. Yeah, yes, it's true. I did. I think it was five hundred and three watts actually. Uh, and uh, people can speculate if they believe it or not, but that was what my power meter said. And uh, yeah, that's uh, it. We usually don't do a twenty meter, uh, twenty minute all out test, but I was having a, a, a VO two max uh, period, and it was actually just not for fun. But I just wanted my last really high intensity session to to see where I was at. So it was more kind of a small uh, test for myself. Uh, and I think I, I asked Jens uh, a few days before if I could convert my last uh, high intensity bike session into this 20 meter t- uh, minute uh, test because it was not that far from each other. So so yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's true that, and yeah. And, and then with the training, so you were doing a, a VO2 block was this prior to the PTO European Open? And can you sort of talk to me about about what your bike training has looked like this year and progressed from like, you know, pre-European Open to now pre-Roth and, and then again going into the World Championships now? It has actually been quite simple and like built. We started with a, like a VO2 max block around Christmas, I think. Yeah. And then we, I think we have six, it, it, like it, we had six weeks of like VO2 work and then we had, some um, threshold race pace work leading into Ibiza. And then for um, before Roth, we had like six weeks with, um, with like Ironman um, LT1 training. So that's basically how it has been like built this year. And then I think now we'll go back to a little bit of VO2 work before the PTO US boom, and then back to Ironman training before the World Championship. And Jens, can you explain to me when you say like we do a v- VO2 block and then we go into like a more threshold block, can you explain to me what that means in a little bit more specifics? So like basically last year, because Magnus uh, started to do Ironman uh, racing, we, we did a lot of like um, 
LT1 training. So it was basically not a lot of variety in the, the training last year. So we kind of wanted to to make sure that he kept his um, high end high. Uh, that has always been, been a big, big, big advantage for him that he has like these crazy high numbers. Um, but but before last year, he he had really high high numbers, but he was maybe struggling to like keep high numbers on like just a 70.3. Like his threshold was fairly, uh, it was a lot higher than his like uh, 70.3 pace. So he was, um, so we needed like to, to close that gap a bit. So last year was a lot of like more endurance kind of work to get him to be able to hold like higher percentage of his threshold. So that was basically what he did last year. And then this year we wanted to make sure that he still had that high end speed. So that's why we did the debut two plug in the start of the year. And so is there much volume when you're doing a VO2 block? Like does the volume increase as you sort of progress to more race specific or more like um, traditional aerobic training? Or is the volume the, yeah, is it the same the whole way through and then just the specific sessions that change? Uh, I think the volume is actually quite similar. Uh, maybe the VO2 is probably the phase where I had the lowest volume but it was still uh, within a few hours on the weekly totals. So uh, we do quite a high volume and, and it was it has been very constant throughout the whole uh, the year this year. About like roughly how many how many hours or kilometers or whatever you think is the best way to judge it would you be averaging this year, Magnus? Uh, so on the swim, I think you said it was around 25 to 30 k a week. And on the bike, it's maybe, what is it, 15 hours or something? Yeah, can remember. A week. And uh, for running is where we have uh, placed a big uh, focus on consistency this year. So I've been running uh, a lot, maybe, uh, yeah, when I've been training, like, uh, the train then the usual weeks have been between 120 and even sometimes more than yeah just above 130 kilometers per week for a total uh, yeah 30 between 30 and 35 hours a week with a lot of it being running so you can you can have a really crazy high total volume if you just uh, ride your bike for 25 hours a week but the difficult one for me at least is to keep this kind of volume but still be able to run that much and still have quality in the pool also. So this brings us into the run at Roth now, which um, I'm really excited to talk about. You, you talked about Patrick Lang being the person you were sort of most worried about needing a good gap off the bike and onto the run with him, which ended up being the better part of 14 minutes. Um, did you did you think about like when when was the first time you got a split to him when you were starting to run? Was there a point where you thought, oh, I've definitely won this if I can drop Sam Laid though, or were you worried about Patrick Lang for a little bit? How did you feel when you got onto the run? And and yeah, just talk me about the entire early part of that marathon and and your your sort of thought processes. Yeah, so I th- I think the last splits I got from uh, my supporters out on the course was that I had around eleven minutes to Patrick, uh, and I knew then that if I, uh, of course I I was I know that we got into rock this year better prepared than last year, so even if I was able to do the same two forty run split as I did last year, I knew it would be really difficult for him 
to put uh, 11 minutes into me. Uh, so so I wasn't too worried about Patrick, even though uh, on an Ironman, you never know if you just will blow up completely uh, from one second to the other. But I knew that if I keep my <laughs> shit together and, and just run like I have done before, then uh, Patrick would not be able to catch me probably. Uh, so in the beginning, I was mainly focusing on Sam, and he had already put on, uh, uh, coming back to our talk uh, before with the calf sleeves, he had decided to put on uh, that in transition one. So he, and the day works, so it was also a sock, so he didn't have to put socks on in T2, so he had a quicker uh, transition than me, so I had probably 200 meters I needed to close, uh, but I felt uh, starting the run felt really good and just had to uh, control myself not to run too fast uh, and I managed to close the gap to Sam and then we basically ran side by side uh, with each other for the next 10, 10 kilometers which was <laughs> that was really epic uh, I think it's it's quite rare that you have those moments in Ironman racing where you are uh, running side by side and you feel uh, the tension and, and just pushing each other like that. Uh, and I was trying to, I mean, we were running really well there between 340 and 345 per kilometer. So that was actually the range we had set out beforehand that I wanted to, to hit. So I didn't feel any need to push, uh, push that pace or try to, to gap him already then. Uh, and felt good and tried to kind of look a bit through, <laughs> like try to look at him and see if I could sense how he was feeling. And but everything I saw and, and heard was actually, yeah, that he seemed in control. And then after 10K uh, or something like that, through an aid station, he suddenly made a, a move where he, so far we had not been running uh, like directly behind each other. It has always, it was all, always until that point, like beside each other. And then suddenly he, he went uh, completely behind me, which I thought was a bit strange. Uh, and he, we actually, <laughs> we almost fell over a few times because he hit my heel when he was running. So I, I was thinking maybe he was starting to get tired then, or just trying to because there was maybe a little bit wind on the canal, so it could also just be strategic to save some energy. But then suddenly I could see that I got a, a small gap and I could sense that I couldn't hear his, his footsteps anymore. Uh, and I wasn't uh, increasing the pace or anything. I was just keeping the same rhythm. Uh, and got a gap and didn't yeah it, it surprised me quite a lot actually because i i thought he looked strong and and looked relaxed when i looked at him before that so and then uh yeah i was looking behind my shoulder a few times to see if i could, <laughs> could sense what was going on uh but it was pretty yeah it, it looked that he was uh just running a lot slower than uh and then around the canal in Roth, you basically have uh, 12 or 13 kilometers of straight running without any <laughs> corners or out and backs. So so it was difficult for me to to, to know where he was, but I just focused on, on my own pacing there. And yeah, so at the turnaround there after 12K, I could see that I already had put maybe 
uh, yeah, two minutes, I believe, into him. Uh, so from there on, it was uh, a lot like last year where I was running the marathon alone and just had to focus on not making any stupid mistakes with the nutrition or hydration and really focus on cooling and all those things. Uh, and I knew that I was running pretty well there. So I also could do the math that it would, it would be impossible I, to, for Patrick to run 12 minutes into me when I was on, on, on the big part of the marathon. I was actually closed, like on the, on route to uh, 2.35. It wasn't until the last 5K where we go out of the town and go really hit the, the last uh, hard part of the run course where it's really hilly that the wheels felt uh, fell, fell completely all, all. Otherwise, I was feeling really well uh, uh, until that point. And so, with the with the run, that was your fastest run by I think I think maybe Roth last year at like two forty was your was your second fastest run prior to that. Or did you run faster at the Ironman World Championships last year? No, you wouldn't have. You, um, it would have been like Texas where you did. So you probably ran like 240 at Texas and Roth last year and then you've made the big step up this year where you ran, you know, you're on pace for 235 and, and ultimately ended up running 237. Did you notice or did you feel much better out there than what you have in your marathon runs off the bike in the past? And, and then can you sort of go back to the training you were talking about and what you've been doing to to sort of get that little bit better over the last sort of six to 12 months? Yeah, I think uh, when you improve, it's not that you <laughs> you feel better. It just goes faster, <laughs> if you can say it that way. So it's not that you just feel, uh, oh, I feel so much better than last year. No, it, it's just like you are still racing on a really high uh, intensity and uh, close to to your, like, your capacity. So... It's not that I was doing the marathon. I was just feeling so much better than last year. It was still really, really tough. Uh, but of course, I could see uh, the numbers were faster and, and my heart rate was really stable, uh, like really uh, perfectly stable throughout the entire marathon. So uh, all those things, uh, yeah, was kind of telling me that it was it was a good day. And we also knew beforehand that I had the potential to go uh, even faster than last year from the training and all the testing we had done uh, leading into the race. Uh, yeah, we can, you can say from my perspective, I also look a little bit at his run, running form. And then, as you know, that's the thing maybe he has been struggling struggling with from the start. The, the, the blue-ups he had like in the early races he did was kind of his running form like um, falling completely apart. And um, from my perspective, I think it looked better this year so like he was he was able to keep like a more efficient running form for for the the marathon and that's probably also a reason why it was a bit faster this year and i also think magnus is like he's still quite new in the sport so i also think just like him training consistently for more years will just like automatically improve his uh his endurance because he's he's still like a young endurance athlete so i just think like just adding years to his uh, training will uh, automatically like slowly improve his uh, his endurance. When it comes to run form, are you doing really specific stuff for it consistently? Or uh, I ask this because Australian running legend Steve Monaghetti, he's um, you know obviously a, a great in the marathon running world. He says 
he's very famous for saying if you want to if you want to be a more efficient runner or you, if you want to be a, a better looking runner you don't have to work on it you don't have to go to the track and do drills you just have to run more and he's never seen a runner that that runs high volume that doesn't eventually start looking like a runner and then i, I hear magnus and, and yourself talk about um how you've you've been increasing your volume 120 130 k's per week is it that the more running you do, the the more efficient you start to run and, and the better your running form and technique gets naturally? Or is it more sort of dedicated, specific drills and technique work? I think um, more volume is it's it's better if you can like cope with the volume. So like it's not better for me to run 120 a week because because then I would be injured like within two weeks. But but if you can like cope with the, the stress of, of doing uh, high volume I think it's definitely better we has, have also like slowly last year we started to like introduce like strength training I also think that plays a big part in the the Ironman puzzle in 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 regards to like holding your running form so I think it's uh, it's the volume but also I think the the strength work in the gym has made him made, made him stronger for for the last part of the the run and so going back to the run at Roth, um, to touch on Patrick Lang a- again quickly, Magnus, can can I get your opinion on the the Adidas Prime X2 the shoe he was wearing? Um, obviously, there's like people who don't care about it. There's people who think it's cheating and, and shouldn't be allowed. And then there's people who think it's, it's good and that, that innovation like that should be sort of promoted and good on Patrick for having that advantage. How do you, as the person who was his main competitor, competitor on the day, feel about it? Um, I mean, we have done a lot of shoe testing ourselves and I think it's good that I think there has to be some guidelines and some rules for what is, uh, like allowed. Uh, but I also know, and I also talked to Patrick that the, the gain from his usual shoe to this one is actually not that big. Uh, but still, I think it's. If you look at it logically and and you start introducing limits on aerodynamic uh, suddenly, uh, then why can you use the traditional uh, athletic rules for shoes? I wasn't uh, I wasn't bothered by it beforehand, and I wasn't. It was not that I was thinking, oh no, I can't win this race because he has the, those shoes. Uh, it's, so I wasn't really annoyed by it. I just think well, I just think it's weird that they don't uh, just adopt the rules that has been uh, put in place otherwise. And then overall, can I sort of just get your your thoughts on the race and and like, do you think that you performed above what you thought was possible? Sort of right where what you thought was possible. Do you think that you actually still had a fair bit on the table left to give? And and how do you feel? going into the rest of the year now that you've had that race at, at Roth under your belt? Yeah, I think, uh, I think if you, if we take the first one, uh, if I performed uh, above, uh, Jens actually said in another podcast a few days before that he predicted my time to be 7.25 and that is uh, within what, 20 seconds <laughs> of what I did. So uh, we knew that my shape was better than last year and and still I think I don't uh, we still see some some things in training that where we think okay there is still room for improvement in the races uh, I think if I had managed to keep uh, everything together on the last five to six kilometers and the marathon and 
had done that too, uh, then that if I had done that, it would have been a two thirty five or something marathon. Then I would I would look at the whole performance and say, okay, this was actually uh, completely what like the swim went uh, according to plan and perfect, and the bike went according to the plan, and I did what I uh, I'm capable of on the bike, and then on the run, if I had just hold out the last 6k then i think that would have been close to my uh, potential in in the run uh, given my current uh, fitness level so so you could say it was really really close to a perfect race for me uh, in all three disciplines and and what do you think about that jens looking at it from the perspective of as of magnus's coach yeah i think i agree um, but i also think to be fair to him if you're like eight minutes ahead with the last seven Ks to go, it's difficult to like try to um, push your limits on, on, on how, how hard you can go. He knew how it is to run side by side as he did with Ben Hoffman last year. And then you can suddenly run, run really fast the last three or four Ks if you have like someone to run with. But if you're out in front, I think it's kind of uh, really difficult to, to get yourself to that uh, limit and maybe a little bit above. So I think for me, it was kind of like the perfect race. Also, like he tactically, he he raced in a good way. Also, so I think he he there's also like the physical part, but there's also like the mental and the tactical part. It, it's um, it's difficult to go out and perform like he did, but it just looks so easy when you do it. So so it's kind of like it looks like really easy, but but it's it it takes a lot of of mental capacity to be able to like perform and do do the right choices during the race it's just it's not just like only physical that you of course you need to be strong but you also need to do the right decision for like seven and a half hours and so we're obviously we've just finished what i sort of think of as the first part of the season and then we head into the second part of the season which is sort of traditionally starting august onwards which is is championship season um, you've mentioned that you're going to do going to do the PTO US Open in the first week of August, Magnus. What else are you going to do this year? Is it going to be the US Open and then straight to Nice for the Ironman World Championships, and that's it, or is there other races in your in your plan as well? Yeah, and then I'm also uh, so US Open will be uh, the next race, and I'm also uh, kind of debating uh, looking to do Singapore. Uh, May on the way to Nice. Uh, it's just a bit of it. You know, there is a lot of travel involved with that, and I really want uh, to perform in Nice. But on the other hand, I also I think after yeah, I did the US Open last year, which was a good PGO race for me, and then European Open uh, uh, this year. And I really just I think the the dynamics and the the racing you get in these PGO races is just. It's just really good fun, and I enjoy racing them uh, those uh, distances. And for an athlete that has never been uh, uh, involved in any uh, short course or anything, I think the PGO races is probably the closest you will get for me to, to to short course dynamics, where everything is just mixing uh, up all the time. People overtaking you, you overtaking another one. So. I really like to do those uh, PTO races, but there is always there are so many uh, big races this season, so you have to pick your, your fights also. And if you look at my calendar so far, uh, and until Nice, it will only be like 
top high caliber races. So you have to be prepared also. <laughs> and so it's going to be definitely the US Open, definitely Nice, maybe Singapore, and then maybe 70.3 World Championships or no 70.3 World Championships? And don't I think no 70.3 World Championships. I would prefer the Singapore Open. I don't think I can race uh, three such high caliber races within, what is it, three weeks or something, maybe four weeks. So you also need to do some, because the knee, the course in these is so uh, different than any other Ironman I have done before. So I think there is also a lot of specific work and optimizations you need to put into the race in these if you want to be fighting against the, the guys that has basically lived on that course their whole life. So let's touch on the, the Ironman World Championships for a bit because it is the the place I want to finish on. So I talked to Patrick Lang after Roth and we sort of talked about – we both thought that you were going to win Challenge Roth. Um, and that's funny because Patrick was, it was in the race. But we both thought like, yep, um, we don't see how Magnus doesn't win Roth. Uh, I thought that was pretty obvious. But we also both agree that it's not as obvious that you're just going to go and win the Ironman World Championships and we think maybe the field and the course doesn't suit you as much as, say, what the field and the course does at Roth. Do you think – what's your take on that? Do you think that the course at, um, at Nice suits you and do you think that do you think that you can go into a race like the Ironman World Championships at Nice and put on the same level of p- performance that you did at Roth where you swim front pack and and ride off the front of the bike and, and run by yourself for most of the marathon? Or do you see the dynamics being very different and, and harder for you? Yeah, I think mainly it's the, it's probably what you're also thinking about is the bike course. Uh, that is different to what I have done or experienced in an Ironman before. And I mean, I'm quite a heavy guy, but uh, if you look at my power to weight is actually not that bad <laughs> so <laughs> i think on the uphills i'm going to i will be able to create some separation uh if not more than i am usually capable of on the flat roads uh that's for sure and then the downhills is something we will i haven't looked at uh, the course or written it yet but it's uh, you can be 100 percent certain that i'm not turning up in these not knowing every single corner on that downhill so i think what people have been saying is that i maybe lack some technical abilities on the downhills uh but yeah we will see uh, i'm not so sure that they are right uh, uh, i'm going to go there and do a lot of recon and 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 from what i see is that they are actually not that technical as people want them to be so and a lot of it is you can actually pedal while you are riding, and and one of my biggest strengths is always is also on like riding uh, fast, really fast and fast sections. So, for instance, going down Harvey in Hawaii is is a place where I will I usually or I can take a lot of time on the other guys. So those fast sections where you are going plus seventy uh, k's per hour. Uh, and still pedaling is is also a strength of mine. So, it uh, I will do my best to prepare for the descents as well. And then, I think it will be a better course for me than Kona probably. For the record, I uh, it doesn't really mean anything, but I completely agree that I think the Nice course does suit you more than the Kona course. And 
I see it a little bit differently than, than what a lot of people are talking about. I don't think the, the bike course doesn't suit you. I think the bike course does suit you. I actually think I, I struggle to see a situation where you don't come off the bike in the lead in, in transition too. My, my thinking or my question and, and what I am curious to get your thoughts about is the, the situation where it's a non-wetsuit swim and there's a really strong front group um, of swimmers and then you have to do what you've historically always had to do, which you didn't have to do at Roth, which was what was so fascinating. But you've historically, like Kona last year or the PTO European Open this year, you've had to ride really hard early on the bike to catch back up to that front group. And I sort of think that maybe there's potential that that, that could happen again. And the first like sort of um, maybe like 20 minutes of the bike course at, at Nice this year is flat, which will really suit you. But I, I definitely see a world where you have to ride really hard to catch back up and then get put in that position that you've found yourself in quite a bit in the past where you've had to ride really big watts to catch the front group and then you rid the front group and, and you've burned a few more tickets than they have and, and it makes your race a little bit trickier um, tactically where, where it's like, oh, well, I've already gone like quite a bit all in to catch these guys and, and, and maybe it's time to back my run rather than to go off the front and attack. And so I, I'm curious if if that situation does play out in a hypothetical world where you have 90 seconds, two minutes to, to catch up on the bike um, from the swim and then you do catch up to the front group, like say Sam Laidlow and whoever else is there. Do you do you think that this is the year where you go, well, I'm not just going to sit in and back my run, I'm going to use my strength, which is my bike, on a course that suits my bike and when I get to the guys, I'm going to keep going with the attack and see how big a lead I can come into T2 with or... Do you think if that situation did play out in a hypothetical world that you would just sit in and back yourself to be the best runner in the field? I think in, in first, if he, if he gets out of the water a little bit back this time, I also think the course is a little bit better because the reason why we want to go to the front fast is not because it's uh, smart like physically, but it's just because we want to make sure that if there's any kind of drafting of the motors, we want to have the draft. <laughs> It's quite, quite like uh, that's the tactic, but in these you could like I think only like 10, 15 k's before you go uphill. Mm. So I don't think the motors will play that big of a part in like the in in the biking because if, when you're riding 20 k's an hour uphill, you don't get a big draft. So I, I don't think it's that dangerous that he has a gap in these because there'll be plenty of like time. Yeah, time where the the draft in front doesn't impact the race that much uh, and then I think the the front group will probably be separated much more early on already so I think that it will be much more yeah spread out on the entire bike uh, so I think that's also will play to my advantage and with this with the field you looked at Patrick Lang in Roth as sort of your biggest competition to win the race or like someone you didn't want to let too close to you off off the bike into into T2. Patrick Lang, speaking of him and, and to bring him up again, he, he has a theory that Gustav Eden will race the Ironman World Championships. A, do you think that Gustav and maybe even Christian might be there or do you think they won't? And and then my, my part B is who do you look at as the same way you sort of looked at Patrick at Roth? Who do you look at as as your main competition for the Ironman World Championships at this stage? Uh, I don't know uh, the Norwegians well enough to say if they will be there or not. I think we will prepare as if they will be there and then we can either be 
surprised one way or the other. So I think you always have to prepare to to face the. I mean, it's it's obvious that if they both turn up, they are huge uh, threats uh, for for the win. Uh, so uh, so also a guy like uh, Max Newman, I think, will be really. He doesn't have any weakness, uh, so I think he's he's one. We have underestimated him a few times before, and we're not <laughs> going to do. Everyone probably has, and I, I, we're not going to do that this time. He's always on the front of the race, so he's really difficult to race against, and he's improved his bike a lot. So it will be interesting to see how he does uh, in that race. I think he will be difficult, uh, and then. Yeah, Patrick is probably also going to be a factor. I think he has really good power to weight, so he will probably be riding well on the uphills also and seems to be training a lot with uh, professional bike riders, so probably also knows how to descend. And then other favorites, uh, the French guys, I think will be uh, on fire on their home. Uh, soil race and a lot of them seem to know the course already beforehand and have been living there almost training on that course for years so so that will also be uh, a factor and then maybe some other Danish guys we have quite a lot of uh, people who are actually already qualified so it's and uh, that's pretty cool and with Max Newman because I agree I think that the two big favorites are Max and yourself, I would probably have Max Newman as the the number one favorite right now, and yourself as the number one, uh, the number two favorite. I'd actually be shocked at this stage if it wasn't you guys who finished first and second, um, depending on what Sam Laidlow can can do. And then obviously a name we haven't talked about is Jan Frodeno, which I'd like to get your take on. But specifically about Max Newman, if you're with him on the bike, say you're going up one of the climbs and he's with you, and you're in in a select front group. Will you, will you, like you said, not make the same mistake you've you've made, which is to let him sit on your wheel like Max loves to do? Will you attack and make sure that, hey, I'm not coming into T2 with this guy, I want to gap over this guy, or or just do you know try and make the bike as hard for possible? Or when you say you're not going to make that same mistake again, what do you mean tactically there? Uh, I think uh, previously we have maybe, and then that that's also a, a big mistake. Not really been thinking too much about him in the lead up and planning of the races. So this year uh, he likes to go under the radar, and we haven't heard anything from him from him since <laughs> either. So I, 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 it's difficult for me to sit here and tell you exactly what I'm going to do if I catch him on the bike, for instance. It it really depends on a lot of factors like when. Do I catch him? How hard have I been able to? Like how how hard have I been going to uh, to get uh, back to him? And where are we on the course? Uh, are we on a descent now, or are we going uphill on the main climb or the falls? I think like there is a main climb uh, that takes around fifty minutes, and then there is a flat part uh, that actually lasts for quite some time. Where I think it's uh, there is potential to create a lot of damage because people have been riding really hard on the uphill and then you would assume that there is a downhill afterwards, but it's actually flat for maybe 50 kilometers uh, on a plateau. So I think that is a, a, a part of the course where I I will try to, to see where we are at and if there is some potential to 
break up the groups, but it's it's difficult to say uh, if I want to attack him or on the bike and where and and I know he's he's been running strong, uh, but yeah, I think we still have some potential also at my running and if I can just find a, a few minutes on the marathon, I I think we are getting getting there also. I, I agree with that like that point you make about the false flat up the top of the climb. I think that whole bottom of climb to the end of that false flat section, that sort of like hour and a half, two hours of racing, I think that's where you're going to win the race if you do win it. And so I'm I'm like just to like pinpoint that for people that's going to be maybe the most like critical point of the race in in the men's race particularly uh, at the Ironman World Championships and I think like if you choose to you can be the one who sort of really animates the race there and 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 you know breaks the race completely open at the back half of that climb and across that false flat um yeah I'm really excited to see that and and really excited to see the battle between you and Max and others I think I think maybe we leave it there, Magnus. We've we've talked enough about it. We're going to no doubt chat before the Ironman World Championships anyway, so we can go into more specifics then when we know how people are going and how training's been going. Um, my my last question is to you, Jens. Is what what are you guys doing now? So you got the PTO US Open in a month, and and then you're sort of straight into the the Singapore Open and Ironman World Championships. So how are you going to structure this next period of training going into that? So the next period will be like focusing a little bit of getting some um, high intensity training in um, because that's uh, quite a period since we've done that. So the next period leading into the USO will be will be that, and then uh, he will go to to Nice after the PTO to do some recon uh, and start doing the the Ironman training again. Uh, yeah, and then we have some some testing in between just to see if, uh, if, if, if everything is going according to plan. Yeah, both like physiological testing and also have a lot of projects for the niche course that is, uh, it's kind, kind of a different way to optimize towards a bike course than what we're used to, because usually it's a fast flat course. This time it's really hilly, so you have to optimize towards different things by the equipment you choose to ride on the bike. I, I want to ask Magnus, because like obviously we had a chat, Roth 2022, where we talked about the the sort of fairing or the the, the container in, in your in your like uh, triathlon suit. And it was one of the first times I reckon it had been talked about. Have you, so you don't have to tell me specifics because I know you're a little bit like secretive and, and try and get an edge there. And I love that about you guys, but is there anything specific that you're working on? Is there any secrets that you've got up your sleeve that you're wanting to test and, and Im- implement um, into your setup or into your equipment at the Ironman World Championships or or a- any of the races the back half of the year? Yeah, we were working on a few uh, pretty uh, cool and exciting projects. Uh, I think I cannot tell you what it is exactly, but uh, when you see my bike in these, you will probably notice <laughs> it's... Uh, that's all. It's what, what, what we're working really closely with Scott, uh, my bike sponsor on those things. And it's really some of the things I enjoy the most is to, to be involved in these projects and see some of them never uh, see the, <laughs> the real world because uh, it turns out it's not possible or it's actually not uh, an advantage. But I think we, we have one specific that is pretty cool that you will be able to see in these Okay. And so when we see it, 
do you think it's going to cause the same drama and we're going to have a Magnus rule 2.0 where we have something else banned because you've started using it and, and then everyone copies and is that going to happen again? Is that just going to become a yearly thing where, you know, a bit of bike technology gets banned because you you, you use it and then you ride too fast for everyone? No, I don't. I don't. I cannot see why this one is uh, is actually pretty uh, harmless. I would say, but uh, <laughs> it, it, and uh, it would be it's a fun one. Okay, cool. I'll keep an eye out for it. Um, awesome, guys. Um, Jens and Magnus, thanks so much for coming on. It's it's always a pleasure, and it was awesome to have you on, Jens. I think I think you are maybe the most uh, under the radar, low key triathlon coach in the world, but. You guys have got a good little program there, uh, and I think you got some names that we we you know Magnus is obviously the big dog at the moment who everyone knows, but there's a couple of young kids coming up, and and I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about Jens Pedersen back as one of the world's best long course triathlon coaches, and and in four to five years time, you you are definitely going to be a, a, like a name that everyone in the triathlon world knows as a coach. So I did want to get you on and and talk to you and and start making people aware of the the program you guys have there and 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 how how good it is and. and I think you're going to have a little, like a little crew going of some of the best uh, long course triathletes in the world pretty soon in the next couple of years. So yeah, it's great to talk to you and and Magnus, thanks for coming on and chatting about Roth and being so candid and and open. Well, pretty much as, as long as it isn't about sec- secret bike tech, which you're a bit closed off about, <laughs> but being so great with everything else. Um, really appreciate the chat, guys, and look forward to seeing you at the US Open and and having a chat in person, Magnus. Oh yeah, you'll be coming to US Open. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yep, it'll be good. We should we should have a little chat in the in the few days leading up. That would be good. Ah, that would be great. Awesome, guys. Enjoy the rest of your day. Good luck with the the build to the US Open and and World Championships, and we'll chat soon. Thank you so much. Bye then. Bye. I've already talked about my brick session that I did during the week, my first one for the year, and there was one other thing that made it really fun. It's that I really dialed in and replicated everything I would do on race day. And I mean everything from how I ate beforehand to slept the night before to got re- like getting ready in the morning. And a big part of it was wearing my brand new Win Republic tri-suit that I ordered about two months ago and has just been hanging up in my wardrobe in my wardrobe waiting for me to race and just waiting to get used and I was going to use I was going to save it for race day but I couldn't wait any longer like I just keep looking at it every day and I, I love it I think it looks amazing and I've loved my my old tri suits from Win Republic that I've used in the past so I just wanted to feel like I was racing for my session because I haven't raced much lately and, and missed it so um, like I'm honestly not just saying it but I've borderline hated every other tri suit I've ever worn in fact, I'd go as far to say as I have hated every other tri-suit I've ever worn. And the main reasons were that all around how they made me feel in them, they were like either too tight in places or just didn't fit right. And to be honest, some of them made me feel pretty self-conscious in them. And I think that's the thing I love most about the Win Republic suits I've worn in the past and why I was so excited to try my new one. It's just they're so bloody comfy. They fit so well and they use materials that I don't really understand the technicalities of it as well as I should, but they just feel great on and they don't give me any feeling of them being too tight around like my arms or around my belly. And I don't know if, if I'm completely alone in this because I haven't really heard anyone talk about it, but I think feeling good in a triathlon race, race suit is one of the most underrated things that, that you can like seek to, to find in triathlon. So if you're like me with that, then seriously, grab yourself a Win Republic tri-suit. They, they also feel really fast on the bike and have lots of handy storage for nutrition. And again, the comfort really does present itself on the run. And I just honestly can't recommend them enough because of that. 
Um, while you're on their website, make sure you check out their cycling and running kit as well. They make so many great jerseys and bibs for the bike and, um, and have a whole variety of great running, running gear as well. I'd say the main thing Win Republic is known for is having the best looking suits and, and, you know, training gear in the triathlon world. And I do agree with that, but the things I talked about above um, are what I really love about them as a brand and why I was buying them way before they ever supported this podcast. So yeah, if you want to try it for yourself, um, then jump onto Win Republic's website and make sure you use the discount code TTH15 for 15% off your order.